Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. In this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy around Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. In this episode, we talk about ownership, and DAOs are one of the best ways to really experience that firsthand. Rabbit Hole has an intro to DAOs skill, which gives you everything you need to start engaging with and participating in DAOs. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Lee Jin, who is the co-founder of Variant, which is a seed stage investor in Web3. Lee is sort of the queen of the creator economy, so I'm so excited to chat today. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chase. Excited to do this. I cannot wait to unpack a piece that you put out a few months ago around a theory of justice for Web3 and talk about a bunch of the elements around that. But before we dive into that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? Oh, sure. So my background is that I've been in consumer software for my entire career. I worked as a consumer product manager for the early part of my career in Silicon Valley, initially working at a startup that built loyalty and rewards programs for retailers and brands on mobile. So I was a mobile consumer PM. And then I went to Andreessen Horowitz in 2016 to work on their consumer investment team. So I spent four years there covering marketplaces, social, really any kind of consumer network effect product was really in our sweet spot. I worked on a bunch of our marketplace investments, spent a lot of time studying social networks, and that led me to developing this thesis internally around the passion economy and the future of online work, wherein I basically talked about and explored how new platforms could represent opportunities for people to be able to monetize individuality and be able to earn a living in a really internet-based way by leveraging their unique skill sets. So in 2020, I left A16Z and I started my own fund focused on passion economy investing. And that was a solo GP fund. I was the only general partner. It was a small fund. And it was through that fund that I got really interested in Web3. Honestly, because so many founders in Web3 reached out to me and said, what we're building actually really aligns with your vision of the future of online work, because we enable users to earn crypto or have ownership over their own creations on the internet for the first time ever and to be able to monetize that. And so I ended up investing in a bunch of Web3 projects out of that first fund, including Mirror Foundation, Syndicate Protocol, YGG, and many others. And the more time I spent in Web3, the more I became convinced that it represented this new frontier of what work meant, and specifically work that empowered participants more than platforms. So that's how I got here. And then since then, I've gone full-time Web3. As mentioned, I'm one of the general partners at Variant, which is an early stage Web3-focused VC firm where full-stack investors 
I lead our consumer practice there, still spending a lot of my time on marketplaces, social content, media, etc. but all Web3 all the time. Yeah, it's always refreshing for me to hear someone who's coming from a consumer background, especially someone like you who has sort of these pre-existing theses on what the future of, of consumer looks like, because I feel like for a long time we were highly technical, um, and I think we really need more consumer-focused VCs, thinkers, all of that in the space in order for us to actually succeed. Yeah, definitely. And I think the end question is like, what are we building this technology for? And I think the fact that innovation has gone up the stack to end consumers is incredibly validating that you know there are use cases and this technology is making consumers' lives better in tangible ways. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I was really excited to talk about the piece that you came out, which is called The Theory of Justice for Web3. And it's sort of based on a theory of justice, which I'm sure we'll unpack a little bit, but about how to really make sure that we're building a society that feels as fair as it can be. And it feels like as more of these protocols and Web3 products hit the hands of consumers and actually tangibly impact their lives, this becomes more and more important. So I'm really excited to unpack it. Maybe you can give like a sort of broad strokes overview of the piece and the thought behind it, and then we can dive into some of the specific pieces. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So the piece is extremely multi-layered. So there's a bunch of different components to it that I will unpack. But for context, this is a piece that I published in May of this year in HBR. And it's also posted on my Substack newsletter, lee.substack.com. And basically the prompt initially that I started from was if we're building a new internet and people often talk about Web3 as the foundation of not just a new internet, but really new economies. If we're going to be building a new internet and new economies and new societies from scratch, then what are the principles that we need to keep in mind when designing such economies and societies? Like what is the end outcome that we want to be facilitating and fostering? I think obviously people are going to have very different answers to that question, but I think a framework that I often find inspiring and have turned to time and time again is John Rawls's ideas around fairness and justice. So John Rawls is this very influential political philosopher from the 20th century who wrote this very large book called A Theory of Justice, wherein he basically unpacks a framework for how do we define what is fair? And when we're creating the foundations of an ideal society, how should we be designing policies and how should we design the society such as to maximize fairness? And I think fairness is one of those ideas that we all value in the abstract, but it's really hard to pin down what that means. Um, we all want to create a fair playing ground and a level playing ground and create more access to opportunities to succeed, but it's hard to translate that into, you know, what does that actually look like if you were to translate that into policy or platform design? And so I started with his ideas as a lens through which to think about Web3 and platform design. And so the first part of the piece really unpacks the ideas in his work, A Theory of Justice. Within his book, he has two major principles of justice, and they actually have different names associated with them. The first part is called the greatest equal liberty principle. And this is 
you know, primary in its importance. Like this needs to be true first before you can move on to any of the other principles of justice. And the greatest equal liberties principle says that all citizens, all participants in a system need to have equal rights and liberties to the fullest extent possible. That's also compatible with others also having those liberties. I think we can all get behind that. Like justice requires that everyone has equal rights. And then from there, it gets more interesting. The second part of his theory of justice entails the difference principle, which says that any sort of inequalities that do exist in a society should meet two conditions. The first condition is that they need to be, he says, quote, attached to offices and positions open to all under conditions of fair equality and opportunity. In other words, all positions such as jobs um, should be open to everyone and allocated by merit, and they should be allocated based on a person's skill level and their willingness to use those skills, not any other factors like their parents or their social class or their their social background. So fair quality of opportunity is that first condition. Um, inequalities that do exist need to satisfy fair quality of opportunity. And then secondly, he says any inequality that does exist in society should exists to maximize the benefit of the least well-off. And this is the part that I find the most profound. Under this principle, any inequality should exist to maximize the benefit of the least well-off. So if we think about, for instance, income inequality in our society among different positions and jobs, you could think about them through this lens. Does the pay disparity between an actor versus a janitor actually maximize the benefit to the least well-off. I think the argument that it might actually be in accordance with the difference principle is that kind of inequality in pay serves as incentive for the person to become an actor, thus providing entertainment for everyone and thus maximizing the benefit to everyone in society. But I think these sets of principles taken together are really intriguing because they resolve this tension that is very core to philosophy, which is the competing demands of freedom and equality. How do we preserve people's individual freedoms while also acknowledging our desire for equality? And so his resolution to this is by stipulating that inequalities need to benefit the least advantaged. And so Anyways, all of these ideas are very, very interesting, and you can apply them not just to the design of societies and laws and thinking about the tax code and redistribution, but you can also apply them in the context of technology and platform design. And so the rest of my essay talks about, okay, let's take these principles then and think about the current internet against these principles, how well does the current internet and our current set of platforms adhere to, say, the difference principle? Do inequalities on social platforms, or if we think of discovery algorithms and how they're designed, or creator funds and how they are dispensing funding to creators, is that in accordance with the difference principle of maximizing the benefit to the least well-off? I think you could argue no, they've actually served to exacerbate inequality and and make the least well-off actually worse off, for instance, by elevating misinformation or by amplifying information that, you know, lessens trust in institutions, etc. And then I also talk about how we should think about these principles in the context of Web3 and what we're trying to design with Web3. 
And so I outline a few principles about how we can design for Web3 in a way that ensures justice as fairness and adherence to Rawls's standards. And those three principles, which we can delve into more, are promoting self-determination and agency. So enabling users to be able to have agency in terms of influencing the direction of various projects, also being able to have a viable path to exit from them. The second one is rewarding participation and not just capital, basically making sure that everyone is on an equal footing to be able to attain positions of power that are associated with compensation, just like, you know, Rawls's principle about fair equality of opportunity. And one way to meet that is to reward participation, not just prior existing levels of capital. And then the last one is around incorporating initiatives that benefit the the disadvantaged. And so this is really speaking to Rawls's difference principle of inequalities needing to benefit the least well off. And so I think it's interesting to think about what are initiatives that we could undertake that actually benefit the least. And so examples of this might be various initiatives to leverage Web3 to create universal basic income or various communities that exist that are trying to focus on diversity and pull in people who are less represented into the blockchain space. And so anyways, in sum, that was a, that was quite a long summary, but in summary, like I think if you go back to the dawn of Web2, I think it was very much framed as this opportunity to course correct and to create a more fair society. And obviously in retrospect, that didn't quite happen or it improved certain dimensions of how various systems work, but also failed us in in many other ways, wherein individuals were not really empowered and instead it empowered a new set of intermediaries. And so if we think about Web3 as this new opportunity that we now have in front of us to course correct and reimagine the internet, then the idea is how do we decide on the principles that we should keep in mind in order to build these new platforms and new networks? I'm curious. I That was like a, a fantastic sort of overview of the piece. I'm curious before we dive into the Web3 side of things, when you think about like why Web2 went so wrong, and I'm sure that there are a lot of factors, but are there like fundamental like elements that feel Kind of like the key reasons that Web2 wasn't able to deliver on all of those pieces. Hmm. So this is maybe an answer, which is perhaps not the full answer, but has been on my mind for a while, which is that Web2, for all of the rhetoric around empowering creators and removing intermediaries and empowering individuals, like that was not baked in to the design of Web2 by any means. And instead, the set of platforms that we have were predicated on the motivation of profit maximization. Um, these companies operate still to this day under this mandate of driving shareholder returns and maximizing profits. There is no mandate of being fair or just or expanding access to opportunities, those things might happen, but only insofar as they serve to maximize profits. Honestly, I think what is very key to this piece that I wrote is how do we shift us from 
being purely profit maximizing in the way that we design systems and organizations to also acknowledging other types of impact that these companies might have. How do we re-engineer incentives that value not just profits, but other things as well? Like, you know, fairness is the explicit topic of this essay, but you can imagine other forms of impact beyond fairness as well. Like how do we bake in incentives to value positive externalities more broadly? And so to answer your question, I think a lot of those other impacts beyond profit were not for foremost in you know the minds of builders or the incentives that they had when building Web2 platforms. And I think that is very fundamental to the set of issues that we now see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it does kind of make me wonder, in the context of Web3, which I think a very valid criticism of Web3 is that it's incredibly financialized. Mm -hmm. And it's been really interesting to watch the DAO ecosystem in particular evolve over the over the past year or so where people I think like a year ago were very much like DAOs run on vibes and we don't need a business model which is obviously not sustainable and now we've gotten to the other side of this pendulum swing which is people like Hasu and others who are well respected and really smart people in the DAO ecosystem saying we need to be thinking about shareholder value which is basically token holder value we need to be running these organizations like businesses and so it does kind of make me wonder if Web3 is accidentally creating the same incentive mechanisms around maximizing shareholder value that don't take into account all of these pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, I think there are projects that are working to not do this, but I'm curious how you think about that element, especially as someone who's funding projects in the space. Like, do you think there's something fundamentally different about Web3 that makes it such that those incentives are different from Web2? Yeah, I think there is something really fundamentally different in Web3, which is that when we talk about shareholder value and maximizing shareholder value, obviously what needs to be taken into consideration is who are those shareholders and what are their incentives and what are they trying to maximize? Like, what does value even mean to them? And obviously the set of investors funding the Web2 platforms actually looks quite dissimilar or potentially looks very dissimilar from the set of shareholders of Web3 projects. Because one of the promises or one of the technological breakthroughs of Web3 is that users can become owners, users can contribute capital or time or effort into these projects and become shareholders in them. And so if ownership can be distributed much more broadly, which is part of the thesis of Variant, then the ways in which those shareholders collectively define what type of value they want to maximize for actually starts to look really different. So to put this more tangibly, like the type of crowd funds that we've seen play out so far in Web3 are really, really interesting. So let's just take as an example, some of the crowd funds that have happened on Mirror, which is the platform that's building creator tools and crowdfunding tools and writing tools. So far, like most of the projects that have been funded on Mirror are not 
explicitly profit maximizing. And in fact, a lot of them, I think most of them do not even make any mention or promise of flowing profits back to people who funded those projects. So you have examples ranging from like the Ethereum documentary, which raised $2 million on Mirror to fund the production of this documentary about Ethereum, to there was a writer who crowdfunded her, her novel on Mirror, to lots of other examples of creative projects being funded on Mirror or communities being incepted on Mirror. By changing the nature of who is able to provide capital, I think you actually change what the motivation of the project can be. And so I think who is a shareholder and who is able to participate in investing and being an owner is really, really critical and fundamental to then the types of missions that we can support and the types of impact that we can have. The fact that historically only accredited investors in the US or qualified investors could invest in private startups, I think that is actually serving to significantly limit the types of innovations that get funded. Because obviously accredited investors and institutional investors, especially those that you know are funds operating with a profit maximization motive in mind, they have to maximize financial returns. But when you change who is able to participate in the funding of a new project from day one, then you actually change the types of innovations that get funded. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I completely think that like access to these types of things is is going to be really important. And I, it's one of the things that I really love about Variant's approach in the space more broadly is this idea of user ownership of platforms. One of the things that stands out to me that's hard to reconcile is this idea that because everything has a price tag, the platforms that people invest a lot of time and energy to might allow them to earn ownership in them in some way. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity cost, if those platforms succeed, of holding that ownership and maintaining governance power becomes like much larger such that if I buy $200 worth of a token and it goes up to $10,000, because I exist in a world where I still have to pay my rent, I am likely to sell that token, not because I don't believe in the platform, but because ultimately like it's just really hard for me to justify keeping that token. I know that's one of the challenging dynamics, but I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I think what you're honing in on is how has it been the case that despite this vision of distributed ownership and user-owned networks, we actually have a landscape where in reality, ownership has become still quite concentrated, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've hit on the primary reason, which is that I think capital tends to be quite centralizing. So individual investors who have, you know, expenses and needs for capital access are motivated to sell. And then investors who have a lot of capital and a much longer time horizon then have this desire to purchase. And so despite the fact that these crypto tokens are theoretically able to be distributed very broadly and owned by anyone, you have over time this concentration of ownership. Um, And I think this is like one of the primary challenges of the space and of token design in general is how to combat that and counteract that. This is one of the areas where I feel like I have more questions than answers, but I do acknowledge that it's really a challenge. And I think having inflationary token systems wherein 
people who are not participating or continuing to add value, diminish their holdings over time through inflation is important, as well as like continued usage incentives such that people who are actually using a product continue to get rewarded with tokens. I think that's a really critical component. Yeah, I think inflationary tokens are like a really interesting element of the ecosystem. And it also does make me wonder, you've been in venture for a while. One of the things that is like important in the conversation around capital and centralizing capital is that like a lot of the early stage funds that exist in the space invest in rounds that they tend to take like large percentages of. Um, mm-hmm. So from like a sort of where funds fit into the future of some of this stuff, do you think funds are just going to become like more democratized over time in terms of access for who can be like LPs in funds? I'm tr- trying to like map out where funds exist in this whole part of it. Yeah. Well, I think that the trend is that founders have way more options available to them than before in terms of both capital and advice. So I think of venture capital really as a bundle of lots of different things. It's a bundle of capital, which is like the dollars being invested into a company, as well as like the advice and the insights and the learnings that you get from whoever those investors are. I think those things are sort of becoming decoupled and then there's people providing advice, then there's people providing capital, capital is increasingly getting commoditized. And then you also have this landscape in which there are just more options for both. There's like a long tail of new forms of alternatives to venture capital for both the funding as well as the advice piece or a combination of both. And examples of this would be like the Dow investment clubs or grants programs or treasuries or even individual investors or even you know funding a project through the sales of NFTs or something else. And I am very much of the belief that the more options founders have, the better. And so I really welcome the availability of all of these new choices that founders get to choose from when thinking about how to fund themselves. And then I think it does call into question, like, what ultimately do VCs represent in the ecosystem? And I think, like, I would welcome a state in which everyone is able to invest in the same projects and opportunities at the same stages that investors are for a lot of, you know, historical regulatory reasons in the US that I mentioned before, that's currently not possible. But I think the world would be better off if the primary value out of VCs weren't just that we're the only investors available for private companies, but instead you could select from any individual or any DAO or any group of like-minded individuals out there. Yeah, that does feel like one of the core principles like all positions being open to everyone and allocated by merit is something that if you consider the ability to allocate capital like a position basically mm-hmm. it's just fundamentally not available to people right now yeah. at the stages where it pays off most yeah exactly i completely agree i think that by shifting who does the funding we very much shift what gets funded And so I'm very much looking forward to a world in which everyone can be an investor. So this reminds me of something that's like somewhat related, somewhat unrelated that I would love to hear your thoughts on, which is that essentially like 
democratizing access, whether it be the ability to invest or opening up access from the perspective of the ability to govern, does feel, to your point earlier, about what the sort of Web 2 wave has done for creators in democratizing access, at least to be able to like build a brand and and around something that you're passionate about and all of those pieces feels really exciting. But the one weird element to me that I've been trying to wrap my head around for a while is this idea that you were talking about around like misinformation and almost like the rise of populism in this context. And so it does make me wonder if we should be worried in some cases about what will get funded from the perspective of just like wisdom of the crowd is not always the best wisdom. And so I would love to hear how you reconcile this idea of like opening access with this notion that everyone having a voice in everything all the time could actually in some cases lead to things that are not as good for society. Hmm. Yeah. That's a really, really interesting question. I still think that the downside case is greater when you have this like very small privileged class of individuals who are able to access ownership and investments than when it's available to everyone. Because the same can be said of the current state of the world, wherein you have this like rarefied group of professional investors who are able to access startup funding opportunities. And they are basically like the sole determinants of what kind of innovation gets funded. And I know there's been a lot of critiques about how VCs have poured so much money into technologies that, you know, are they actually making the world any better and perhaps not allocating capital to truly world positive things. So I think that critique stands in both cases. I think broadening access to investments ultimately is a step in the right direction versus where we're coming from. Yeah. And I guess you could also argue that like there is definitely a world in which some of the challenges that we've seen online over the past like five years were actually also a reflection of centralization of capital whereby capital was basically deployed in a way to like spread information in ways that kind of like manipulated the way that people showed up in the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe like in absence of that, in an ideal world, we don't shift to a direction that is at least as far as we've gone. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think who has been able to access capital and who has been – the historical dispensers of that capital has influenced these technology platforms in such profound ways that it's almost difficult to see because it's so ingrained. But, you know, who these platforms have been built by, who they're owned by, it really influences everything down to the level of like where our attention is being directed and like influencing the way that our attention flows who is competing for that attention, who is able to have the power to influence the incentives and structures that sort of direct attention, like that is kind of the most powerful force on the internet. And all of that has been architected in a system in which relatively few people have been able to 
have power and have a voice in determining that. And so I think broadening the ability to influence those platforms and to fund them is a sea change that has a lot of downstream impacts that I think a lot of us haven't fully even grasped yet. Oh my gosh, yeah. I feel like we haven't even started to understand most of them. Like our narratives today are going to look so simple and probably optimistic in some ways compared to what people in this exact same setting on a podcast 10 years from now are going to be talking about. Yeah. But it does make me think like before we wrap up, this question that is kind of coming to mind for me is like, do you think that Web 3 and Web 2 are mutually exclusive? Mm. Like can they coexist? Yeah. Because like when I even think about this idea that there is a pretty select group of people who actually have a really large ability to change and influence the minds of people at scale. It makes me wonder like what happens when you have that combined with democratic systems that are being governed at scale where like those two things actually become potentially even a more dangerous combination because you're not just influencing people at this like scale where you can target their existing capabilities, which are like you can buy things, you can vote for certain people in your, you know, democracy in your country. But we're taking it to the next degree where people now have like so much say in these platforms on the internet that I don't know, like there's almost more power to the Web2 platforms who can then influence all of these different people. You know what I mean? Like the 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 two of them in tandem create this ability to like weaponize their attention and to get people to control user-owned platforms in like ways that are actually insidiously influenced by Web2 platforms. Exactly. Which is like, hmm, can Web2 and Web3 coexist? <laughs> that is super interesting. I mean, I think if you think of the the negativity that exists right now around Web3 on the broader internet, like around NFTs or crypto, like if you just look for crypto on TikTok and you look at the comments or any like Instagram creator who starts to do anything about NFTs and look at their comments, and actually your comment brings that to mind is like, are those beliefs things that have naturally arisen people's minds or are they actually being somehow influenced by all of the platforms that currently command our attention because they are at some level disruptive to what those platforms are building? It wouldn't be totally implausible to think that. Yeah, not at all. I mean, we've even seen like, I don't know what happened with MailChimp, but whole thing this week about MailChimp and crypto companies and they said that was not what happened, but no matter what, like it does feel like we're seeing some of that. And so it, I don't know, it makes me wonder if Web 2 and Web 3 can actually coexist. In theory, sure. But in practice, it does feel like the amount of power that Web 2 gives a select group of people, especially to your point when those people are absolutely like threatened by Web 3, it makes it feel less likely that they can coexist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think coexisting is going to happen in terms of being free from the influence of all of the feeds and the algorithms that have now been adopted by the vast majority of the population. I think it's going to be really difficult for them to be free of that influence. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. As we like wrap up, I'm thinking it feels like actually part of a theory 
of justice for Web3 is not just access to the ability to govern spaces or the ability to make money off of something, but also just like the ability to be free of influence. And mm-hmm. and you talked about that in the beginning around like self-determination and agency. You know, it's not just about the ability to influence, but it's also about ideally being at least aware of the ways in which you're being influenced. Yeah, that reminds me of a tweet that I wrote a while ago. I think it was maybe earlier this year where I talked about that notion of freedom. What does freedom actually mean? The idea of like user ownership of assets theoretically is designed to make us free. It makes us free from a financial perspective. And yet, if we think about the other facets of freedom, like freeing our attention, freeing our mental bandwidth, arguably crypto has actually made us less free because it's, you know, 24 seven, people are talking about addiction to these platforms because they're trying to figure out what projects to invest in next. Like things are constantly happening. The news cycle moves so quickly in crypto and to stay on top of it requires this constant exertion of our attention and and our energy. And so that element of freedom, I think is under discussed and that element of our freedom is currently really under the grips of all of these platforms that have been built over the last decade. And so, yeah, I think the interplay between Web 2 and Web 3 is going to be really fascinating. Real freedom is partially just the ability to touch grass and step out of the space that we are currently in all the time. Yes. I absolutely love that as a reminder to touch grass. Lee, this was such a wonderful conversation. Where can people learn more about you and what you're doing in the space? So people can follow me on Twitter. Elgin18 is my Twitter so that I can take up more of your attention. And then <laughs> lee.substack.com is my blog. And then for more about the fund, Variant Fund, folks can check out our website, variant.fund. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Chase. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.